Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to be studying today these last few verses of the chapter, verses 24 to the end of Genesis chapter 1. Who am I? Why am I here? What does it mean to be human? I wonder how many thousands, maybe even millions of songs, books or movies and other efforts have been made to answer that question. Uh, Broadly speaking, there are two lies that the world would have us believe about what it means to be human. On the one hand, there is the lie that humans are just animals. That the only real difference between you and an ape is that you're wearing clothes and have opposable thumbs. And TV presenters like Sir David Attenborough will casually mention at every opportunity that orangutans and monkeys and apes are, quote, our near cousins, or words to that effect, that we are nothing more than highly evolved animals that started off as soup in a pond. And yet those who claim that humans are merely highly evolved animals don't really have the strength of their conviction. That whole notion is based on the sort of survival of the fittest and the improvement of the of of species and so forth that Charles Darwin and others have propagated. But we don't really have the strength of our convictions. We, we don't in every sense adopt a survival of the fittest attitude in our society. Just look at what's happened this past year. We've brought normal life to a standstill in an effort to protect the most vulnerable human life from a deadly virus. So if we really believe that we're just highly evolved animals here by chance, why would we bother protecting vulnerable human life? Well, it's because we know deep down that human life is infinitely valuable, far more valuable than animal or plant life. But then on the other hand, there's another lie that humans are tempted to believe. And that is not that we're just animals, but that we're basically gods. After all, we are more intelligent, more beautiful, more sophisticated than any other part of creation. So much so that our time, some would say, is best spent on ourselves. And this would explain some of the popularity today of billion dollar industries like health and fitness and and the rise in popularity of the wellness movement. Some of that being evidence that many human beings today basically worship themselves. And yet again, deep down, if we're honest, we know that human life is far from divine. No matter how much we spend on keeping up appearances or keeping our minds and bodies healthy or well pampered, we can't stop, we can't change the fact that we get older. Most of us will get sick. There's no telling what accident or injury could severely limit or even end our lives in a few seconds. So we're not animals and we're not gods. What are we? What does it mean to be human? Well, Genesis gives us the answer. To be human is to be an image bearer of God. To be human is to be an image bearer of God. And boys and girls, if you have the the sheet in front of you, uh, you'll see that verse, Genesis 1.27. God created us in his own image. To be human is to bear the image of God. And if we understand that, we understand our purpose. We understand who we are and why we're here. And so I want to think today about those words 
uh, image bearers of God and what they mean. And the first thing that Genesis shows us today is that as God's image bearers, we are unique. As God's image bearers, we are unique. This passage is written in such a way that it stresses to us. that It is at pains to show us how uniquely God made us as human beings. Different from every other part of creation. So far in Genesis 1 we keep reading. And God said let there be and whatever it was came to be. Let there be light and there was light. And so forth. And that's the, that's the pattern all the way through the account of creation. But when we get to God creating human beings, it changes. Notice verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man. Who's God speaking to when he says, let us? Well, it's not the angels, because the Bible's very clear that angels don't help God create. That's not one of the jobs of angels. And the Bible's also very clear that God consulted no one else when he created us and everything else in creation. Isaiah speaks of that. God says, who did I consult when I created the universe? The answer is no one. So who is God speaking to when he says, let us? Well, friends, God is speaking to himself. This is the first hint in scripture of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the first hint of the Trinity. Here is the Trinity consulting with one another about this unique and special act of creation that's about to be the the climax of of the whole creation. You might say, well, I don't see the word Trinity there anywhere in Genesis 1. In fact, you won't find the word Trinity anywhere in your Bible. You might say, how do you know that this is God, the Father, Son, and Spirit working together? Well, back in Genesis 1 verse 2, we do read of God, the Spirit, hovering over the waters. And so there is, there's part of it. But of course, we're reading Genesis knowing everything that the New Testament tells us about our God. We're reading Genesis knowing that the Bible makes very clear that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're also reading Genesis knowing that the New Testament makes very clear that it was through Jesus Christ that everything came into existence. We read that earlier in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. By him, Paul says, all things were created. And so this final act of creation, the creation of human beings, friends, is unique. God, the Father, Son and Spirit take, a, take special time and draw special attention to this unique moment. It's different from all the rest. But not only are human beings made in a unique way, we also see that human beings were placed in a unique position We're given a unique position. Verse 26 goes on to say, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and so forth. And then in verse 28, God also tells the man and the woman that they are to subdue the earth. And those words dominion and subdue there, they they really mean to bring something under your control. To get something working the way you want it to work. To understand it. 
Now, it does not mean that human beings had God's permission to exploit the earth, to ruin the earth. That's not what this word means. But human beings are to have the same appreciation for the world, for creation as God has. We're to care for it. We're to get the best out of it. We're to cultivate it on God's behalf. So human beings are in a unique position. We are creatures. We are created beings. But we're different from all the others. The lions don't have dominion over the world. They have dominion over some things. They don't have dominion over everything. Uh, The birds, the, the fish of the sea, they all have their place. But they don't have dominion. Only human beings have dominion over everything else. And this is emphasized further in verse 29. God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. That word every just keeps appearing. In verses 29 to 31, God is saying to human beings, It's all yours. Enjoy it. Make use of it. Explore it. Uh, and Make the best of it. And so we are made in a unique way. And in a unique position. And these verses friends give us our mandate. For everything that human beings get on with. Every good, every good and worthwhile endeavour. Be it agriculture or science. The development of technology. Our communication systems. Our transport systems and everything. Every technological or scientific leap forward. From the iPhone to the COVID vaccines. Has been possible because of the the raw materials found in God's creation. That he has given us dominion over. And so these verses give purpose to all of us. Whatever your strengths. Whatever your gifts are. Boys and girls as you study at school or in Sabbath school. You're learning more about the world God has given to you. If you work in the fields each day. Or if you work in education or in health. You're exercising dominion over the areas of this world that God has given to you. If you enjoy hiking up a mountain or surfing in the ocean or just going for a walk in the countryside. You're enjoying and you're exploring and you're subduing the world that God has provided for you. Enjoying good food and drink. Enjoying art, technology, whatever it may be friends. It's all possible Because of the unique position that we are in as image bearers of God. So as God's image bearers we have been made unique. But secondly as God's image bearers we are made to relate and reflect. We are made to relate and reflect. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him Male and female, he created them. Male and female. What it's saying, friends, is that the man and the woman and all men and women since are fully equal image bearers of God. The woman was not made inferior to the man, nor is the man inferior to the woman, contrary to what some feminists would have us believe today. One is just as dignified and special as the other. One Uh, reflects the image of God just as much as the other. 
These verses mean that there is no room for sexism. There's no room for discrimination in our world based on skin color. All of that is wicked and sinful. But nor does it do away with the fact that there are distinctions between roles. And we'll talk a bit more about that in future weeks, God willing. But the point here is that all of us, regardless of skin color or gender, are equal image bearers of God. And we are made to know each other. We are made to relate to each other, to have relationships together and to enjoy one another. We see that in marriage, between parents and children, between friends at school, brothers and sisters. And we see it especially in the church family. All of us in the church are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are made to relate to one another and to get to know one another and to enjoy one another. And friends, when God makes us male and female, he makes no mistakes. Contrary to what our culture is trying to have us believe today, no matter how strongly an individual may feel, their gender and their sex are one and the same. Our feelings don't determine our reality. God has determined our reality. And if we're willing to ask for his help and grace, he will enable us to live Lives of purpose and joy in whatever bodies, with whatever gifts, he has given to each one of us. But you might still be asking, well, what does that word actually mean? To be made in God's image. Well, in the time when Genesis was first written and read, uh, human kings would set up statues of themselves all throughout their territory. Especially if a king ruled over a very large area of land. He couldn't always, obviously he could only be in one place at once. And so in the parts of the country that he rarely got to or that he didn't live in. He would have an image of himself put up to remind his people who was in charge. They would see the image and they would remember their king. And similar things are done today. Some of you might have gone to the stadium of your favourite football team and you've seen statues of some of the club's greatest players outside the stadium. Or maybe you've visited cities like London and Paris and you've seen statues of the great leaders of the past. You see the image and it it reminds you of something. It, It reflects something of that person's character or skill, whether it's a footballer or a political leader or whoever it is. And friends, God has created us not as uh, stationary statues, but he has made us as his image bearers to reflect his character, his goodness, his love to one another and to our world. This is one of the reasons the second commandment tells us not to make images of gold or stone or metal uh, of God. We image God. We reflect God. Parents are supposed to reflect the fatherly, tender care of God to their children. Boys and girls, you're supposed to reflect or to show the the same kind of obedience to your mum and dad as Jesus did when he was your age. Husbands are supposed supposed to reflect the the leading and self-sacrificing but tender care of Christ for his bride, the church, to our bride. And wives are to reflect something of Christ's glad and joyful submission to his Father's will. Those of you who work with your hands, maybe with craft or machinery, 
You're to reflect the creativity and the ingenuity and the skill of God in your area of expertise. Those of you who work in full-time care of, of one kind or another, you're called to reflect the gentleness and loving care of Jesus Christ, the great physician. When we speak out against injustices of one kind or another in our society, whether it's the sanctity of life, our denomination put out a statement this week concerning that in Northern Ireland. Whether we speak out on the provision for the poor or the marginalised, we reflect the justice and the righteousness of God. And so friends, we are here to relate to one another and to God and we're here to reflect, to show the, the, the character of God in our world. And we can only do that if we have a relationship with God. Notice in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, the first thing God did after he had made his image bearers, it says, he blessed them and he spoke to them. He spoke to them. God blessed the animals, but he didn't speak to them. He created the birds, but he didn't speak to them. He speaks to us. He has a unique relationship with us. And of course, he still speaks to us today through his word. And if we want to know what our purpose is in this life, if we want to know how we're supposed to live, why we are here, how to reflect God, we need to listen to God in his word. And the more we know him, the better able we will be to reflect him and the greater sense of joy and purpose we will have as his image bearers. So friends, all of this is to say that your life and mine is incredibly precious, priceless in fact. God himself designed us, designed you and placed his image upon you. Every single human life is made to reflect the glory of God. No matter how short that human life, no matter whether that human life is limited in some way or other, it is precious and it is capable of imaging God in our world. And this is why we have been seeking to take care of the vulnerable and the elderly more than ever this past year. Because every human life matters. And this is why we stand so firmly against abortion and want it ultimately to be abolished. Because pre-born human life is just as precious as born human life. We are all equally image bearers of God. This is why excessive eating or drinking or drug abuse or laziness are all sinful. They harm human life. They impede the purpose of human life. To be fruitful and to be hardworking and to use the gifts that God has given us. And since we're made for relationship with God, friends, this is also, my, this is also why, no matter how hard people might try to ignore it, there is a void in every human heart. That will not be filled by anyone or anything other than God himself. This is why all those good things that I've mentioned that we can be doing. Our work, our family life, our, our marriages, our, our jobs. They're all good things but none of them will give us the ultimate purpose and peace that our hearts crave. As one writer says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, the living God. So we are made to relate to God and to each other and we're made to reflect 
God's character in our world. But of course this brings us to a problem. Because something has gone terribly wrong in our relationship with God and with one another. And in our ability to reflect God into our world. And so thirdly and briefly, as God's image bearers, we are ruined. As God's image bearers, we are ruined. We have been made unique. We have been made to relate and reflect. But also we are ruined. And I should perhaps say we're not completely ruined. We are not damaged beyond repair. We'll think more about that in a few, mem- a few minutes. But we are certainly none of us perfect image bearers of God. Imagine a beautiful painting, but it's been covered in dirt or graffiti or scribbled over with a marker pen. The image is there, but it's been ruined. It's been spoiled. I don't know if, I don't know if we have any uh, Mr. Bean fans here in Dremore. I used to love watching Mr. Bean when I was a child. And eventually they made a Mr. Bean movie. And in the movie, Mr. Bean ends up in, a, in an art gallery in Los Angeles. And he's left alone in a room with a priceless painting. And all of a sudden he sneezes on it. And he gets out a hanky to to wipe up the mess. Only to discover after he's been wiping at it that a pen, a blue pen in his pocket has leaked all over the hanky. And he has now just smudged blue ink all over this priceless painting. And things just get worse and worse from there. The more Mr. Bean tries to sort out the mess he's made, the worse it gets. Until the painting is completely ruined. And friends something similar has happened with each one of us. The image is there. Even if we're not Christians. The image of God is in us. But it's covered over with the mess. The blotches. The stains of our sin. The selfish hateful thoughts that pass through our minds. The angry words that we speak, the lies that we tell to make ourselves look better and others look worse. Even good things that we do for the wrong reasons. Those are all stains and grubby marks all over the image of God in us. And a bit like Mr. Bean frantically coming up with all kinds of solutions that just make the problem worse. We can't fix ourselves. In fact, the Bible says that God is particularly disgusted and repulsed when image bearers pretend that they're good people, pretend that everything's okay, try to cover up our problems and our sin, thinking, well, I'm a good person, I'm at church more weeks than I'm not, haven't done anything really awful, I keep my nose clean. That kind of attitude is particularly repulsive to God. You're frantically trying to cover over the mess of your sin. And in fact you're making it worse. Scripture says there is no one righteous. Not one. Paul says in Romans 6. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. There are no perfect image bearers. None of us who perfectly reflect the love. The goodness. The grace. The gentleness. The beauty of our God. No perfect parents, no perfect boys or girls, no perfect husbands and no perfect wives, no perfect pastors, no perfect church members, no perfect Protestants or Roman Catholics or Muslims or anyone else. 
We sometimes say, don't we, no one's perfect, you know, to try to make light of something we've maybe made a mess of. Nobody's perfect. That's true, but another way of saying it is, everyone's a sinner. Nobody's perfect, everyone's a sinner. Can we do nothing about this? Can no one put right what has gone so terribly wrong? Can no one salvage the image of God in each one of us? Well, that brings us fourthly, finally, joyfully to consider today. There is one perfect, redeeming image bearer. There is one perfect, redeeming image bearer. Everything goes wrong for God's image bearers in Genesis 3, as we'll see in due course. That's when Adam and Eve fall into sin and ruin their relationship with God. But nonetheless, friends, even at the moment of the fall... God offers hope that someday someone will come who can put things right. The promise that God makes in Genesis 3 is that there will be someone, one offspring from Adam and Eve, in which by by whom the image of God in us can be restored. This is why Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ was fully God from all eternity. And he chose to become fully human as well. One ancient writer says, Jesus added to his divinity humanity. We always need to be very clear about this. Jesus did not stop being God when he came into this world. He remained God. He added to his divinity humanity. He became a human being. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, so born human, Under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That's you and I, those born under God's law who have broken God's law. It says Jesus came as a human being to redeem human beings. To redeem someone or something is to pay the price for them, to make up the cost of their mistakes. If you make use of a gift card at a restaurant, remember remember those days? Maybe we'll get there again eventually. But if you were to use a a gift card at a restaurant, you're enjoying something that someone else has paid the price for. You didn't earn it. Someone else graciously paid for it and gifted it to you. Jesus Christ can redeem us because he came on a mission to be the perfect image bearer of God. To perfectly obey God, to have a perfect relationship with God. And to perfectly reflect God, show God to our world. Jesus kept God's law perfectly. Jesus was a perfect worshipper of God. There wasn't one crack or stain or blotch on Jesus his whole life. And so friends, Jesus Christ in his perfect humanity is the perfect image of God Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. What it's saying is if you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. I wonder if you heard it said, maybe it's been said of you, that you're the image of your father or your mother. And that's not just in terms of your outward appearance. 
We say that about people who's, who in their character, their, their personality traits, their quirks, they're just, you know, sometimes you hear people say, oh, they're just their father over again. If you want to know what the father's like, you look at the son. And that was perfectly the case with Jesus Christ. And so friends, if to be human is to know and to relate to God and reflect God, if that's what it means to be human, then there is no one more human than Jesus Christ. He is the only perfect one among us. And so he is worthy to redeem us, to cover over the cost of our sin, to cover over and make up for all those stains and blotches in our lives. And if your trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ today as your Redeemer, then he is at work in you. He's restoring the painting, so to speak. He is taking out all that doesn't belong and he is making you who and what you're supposed to be. He is making you more human. Have you ever thought about your Christian life that way? That to be Christian is to be becoming more human. Some people fall for the lie that if you become a Christian, you're living kind of almost a less human life, that you're limiting yourself, that you're cutting yourself off from experiences that you need to have. Boys and girls, some of your non-Christian friends, maybe as you get older, will find it very strange that you don't go some of the places they go or do some of the things that they do. They'll be trying to convince you that you're missing out, that you're not getting all the good things out of life that you need. Well, that's not true. To be human is to become more and more like Jesus. To go to the kinds of places he would have gone, to say and do the kinds of things he would have done. It's to become more human. And it's those who chase after every possible physical or emotional pleasure and yet find that none of it ever really satisfies. It's those who think that life is only worth living if you're living in rebellion against God, if you're living for your job, if you're living for your status, if you're living for possessions or for a bank balance, those things make us less human if they're the ultimate in our lives. There's a mental health crisis in our country today as well as a COVID crisis. In part because people have been making all these other things the object and purpose of their lives and they've been drifting further and further away from God. It's like they're frantically trying to sort out the painting And they're making more of a mess of it than ever. I wonder, is that your experience? As you reflect on your life today, if you're honest about it, that's what you've been doing. You've been frantically working over the painting, making a bigger mess than ever. If that's the case for you today, dear friend, Jesus Christ is the redeemer that you need. He is the perfect image bearer of God who can cover over your sin And begin to work in your life. And to make you more and more the person that you're supposed to be. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Are being transformed into the same image. That's the image of Jesus Christ. He says we're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. From one degree of glory to another. What he's saying is that to be a Christian is to have Jesus working in you. Maybe he's working on your temper. Maybe he's working on your generosity of spirit. 
Maybe he's working to make you less anxious and more trusting in in the goodness and sovereignty of your Father in heaven. Maybe he's working to take away your lusts. Maybe he's working to bring about greater self-control, greater joy. Friends, this is what it means to be made in the image of God. It's to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So do you know who you are today? Do you know why you're here? Do you know why your life matters? Do you know where you're going? Do you have hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? To make you more and more the person that you were meant to be. And to give you everlasting life as it was meant to be. We all with unveiled face. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. From one degree of glory to another. Amen.